I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 392 for August the 2nd. Yeah, let's say it's August the 2nd, 2012. I'm here in State College, Pennsylvania, taking a little break from the Jazz or Bust tour to spend some time with my two sons. I'll be back on the road toward the end of August, Labor Day weekend to be exact, when I'll start off at the Detroit Jazz Festival and then continue on part two of the tour, heading west. Meanwhile, though, I'm going to be bringing you the shows that I recorded on part one of the tour, and in fact, there are so many of those that they will extend even into the second part of the tour by a few weeks, because uh, I interviewed quite a few people when I was out on the road. Today's guest is the trumpeter John Durth, uh, one of the mainstays of the Charlottesville, Virginia community, and uh, a mainstay of the New York scene before that. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can also join the show's mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Just click on Mailing List at the top of the page. You can, of course, subscribe to The Jazz Session in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and all the links to do that are at thejazzsession.com. You can also support the show in a couple different ways. You can become a recurring member of the show with a monthly or yearly donation via thejazzsession.com slash join, or you can make a one-time donation to the Jazz or Bust tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. While I am on the road, I'm posting daily tour diaries at jasoncrane.org, where you'll also find my poetry. While I'm in Pennsylvania, since not as much is happening that is interesting to you, I'm just posting the occasional Pennsylvania diary. But there are diaries from every day of the first part of the tour that you might want to catch up with and also lots of poems that I wrote while I was on the road. And, of course, once the tour starts again at the Detroit Jazz Festival in the end of August, I'll be posting daily tour diaries again. As I mentioned, today's guest is John Durth. He has had the same gig at a place called Miller's in Charlottesville, Virginia, for more years than anyone is actually sure of, but it's something like 25 or 30. He plays Thursday nights there. He's played with many of the heavyweight names in jazz, and I think many people would agree that he is himself one of the heavyweight names in jazz. He's also an educator and a composer. We'll hear some music from John Durth and then my conversation recorded with him in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia, thanks to my friend John Mason.
My guest is the uh, trumpeter, composer, educator, John Durth. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks Thank for being you, here. Jason. Thanks for having me. So I was, uh, I was really happy to get a chance to see you in your natural habitat last night um, at Miller's here in Charlottesville, a place I've never been to Charlottesville before yesterday and never been to Miller's. And I was really impressed by the hang and by the caliber of the musicians. Well, thank it, you. It seems like you have a, a wealth of talent to draw on here in the, the There area. is a huge amount of talent in central Virginia. Uh, great players, schools that produce really serious students, and not everybody who plays seriously is a student in a school either. Somehow a lot of great players have gravitated here. I just think that's probably true. You probably know this better than me all over the country. You know, there are just all these pockets of players, places where people have gone. But, you know, Virginia is um, rich in a musical heritage. You know, Jefferson lived here in Charlottesville and was huge on music. Ella Fitzgerald's from Newport News, and there's a, there are just a, many, many musicians who've been from here. I don't know if you know Big Nick Nicholas, sure. you know, who was a mentor to train, and I just have been reading about him a little bit in Miles Davis's autobiography, which I'm reading again for a course I'm teaching. And he lived in Charlottesville. Oh, I didn't know For that. many years and played here at a place called the Hilltop Lounge, I think up on Pantops Mountain. And there were people, uh, there was a regional band, I think in the 20s, Samson's Happy Pals, that was a v- recorded, you know, they made records and they were from this town. And... Uh, there was a Ralph Sampson was a football was a ba- uh, basketball star here, and he was a uh, descendant of Edgar Sampson who had that group, and um, uh, Sonny Sampson taught music at Albemarle High School and taught Carter Beaufort who plays drums in the Dave Matthews Band quite famously now and is an old friend and played with us at Miller's a lot over the years and uh, Leroy Moore who was the tenor player in Dave's band and tragically died sure. a couple of years ago, uh, back. So, Well, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, you mentioned that people gravitate here. You, like me, are from Massachusetts originally and uh, spent quite a bit of time in the New York scene playing with, I mean, many of the greatest names. names I was lucky know. to do that. That's true. And, and now we're here in Charlottesville, and there has to be, uh, I imagine – some fairly interesting story that links uh, the New York loft scene and uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Talk about how that happened. Well, um, I did live in, I was going to school up in Cambridge, Mass. There's a drummer who lives around here and actually would be a wonderful person for you to interview, Robert Jospe. He's actually coming in at one. Oh, is he really? (laughs) (laughs) He's amazing. Anyway, Joss and I are old friends. We were best friends in high school and we've been playing together ever since. He's a great drummer and... uh, he and I, he, he, I was going to school in Cambridge, and he was going to school in New York. We both quit college, and uh, I started coming down to New York a lot to his loft. He had a beautiful scene over in the meat market uh, on 13th Street and 9th Avenue, and uh, people used to call it the clubhouse. All these tremendous musicians used to go there. The Brecker Brothers went there, Richie Byrack I met there. Uh, Bob Moses, even Elvin Jones was a friend of Joss's and, and used to show up there very rarely, but he did show up there. And um, I was there one day in the early 70s and just realized, I heard Dave Liebman and Mike Brecker in one day at that loft jamming with Joss. And I said, I got to get out of college and come to New York. And I quit school and uh, moved to New York. So, you know, we lived, I lived there for many years in New York myself for about 12 years. And um, 
we had a band there called Cosmology, which was basically a cooperative band between myself and Joss and my wife, who was not my wife at that time, but Dawn Thompson is her name, a wonderful singer and songwriter. And we had this band in New York, and we probably, we kept that band and were very dedicated to it the whole time we were in New York, and we probably had a hundred alumni. And we were just talking about John Abercrombie. He was our first guitarist. And when he left, because he started getting a lot of gigs with um, Billy Cobham and uh, Gatto Barbieri and others, he recommended John Schofield. So John <laughs> Schofield was our second guitar player. Wow. So that'll give you an idea of the band was really fun and a really great band in many ways. And um, at a certain point, the three of us, Don and Joss and myself, decided we wanted to move out of the city for the summer. We tried to go to the Berkshires, couldn't find anything there. We ended up, we had a following down here in Virginia because Don was from this area. So she knew people and we would bring the band down here to play. And we were actually, we had quite a good following here. So we came down here, rented a farmhouse for the summer in the early 80s. And then stuff started happening here. We met some people who really wanted to support the band. And um, so we stayed. And I ended up just staying here. And that was the, how I got here. And then um, I, well, I don't go wanna, ahead. I'm going to interrupt you yeah, just go, to say, go for it. Um, you know, and there's a lot contained in the phrase, and so we stayed, because, yeah. I mean, that's a huge decision to say, I mean, it's great if you have a following here at that moment, and, you know, it's a nice town, and it's pretty, and it's warmer than New York, but you're, you're making a very intentional decision to, I don't know if give up is the right word, but to make your, to put yourself at a farther distance Absolutely right. And that was a very scary decision to make. And I remember, you know, waking up in this farmhouse. And I'm from the country. And I, we, we all love to be in the country. So we, we all have a great appreciation for that. But, man, I woke up in that quiet farmhouse. And I thought, what have I done? And I was writing to people. And every time I had to write my return address, I said, man, this town has got a long name. <laughs> I'd write it out. But, you know, um, yeah, it was, it was a scary thing. But I want to say that we really were going on an idea that was, you know, culturally very related to the 60s, to the idea of co communality and creating something together, and also taking one of the lessons from jazz, which is to really do your own thing and go your own way. And I loved New York. I was playing a lot of Latin gigs up there, which I really loved learning that music. Uh, that was unbelievable. And also had many friends who were great, and I, you know, you'd get to play with these people. I mean, my first project up there was with Bob Moses, and because I was the youngest guy in the project, and I just fell in love with Moses. I sort of became his lieutenant on this project and got to go around to all these other great musicians on the project and show them the music. So that's how I met Randy Brecker and Eddie Gomez was on that and Gene Lee, the singer, and it was just amazing. And in that way, things were sort of happening. And even in New York, I made a few decisions because of our band, uh, commitments with our band Cosmology. I didn't go, say, to Japan with Thad Jones Mel Lewis when uh, uh, Al Porcino asked me to go on that tour. And I've, that's always been a mixed bag for me that I didn't do that, but it was the result of believing that a person had to go their own way. And in a way, I was very inspired by Miles's example because Duke asked him to join the band when he was in the middle of recording uh, Birth of the Cool, and he told Duke he'd love to do it and had nothing but love and respect for Duke but that he had this project that he had to finish himself, and thanks anyway. And, man, Duke never called him again, 
but he would not have been the same person. And I wouldn't have been the same person if I made these decisions, and if I hadn't made these decisions. And certainly uh, my career has not been anything like Miles's career, which, of course, as a young person, you hope for something to happen. But my life has gone in very uh, multiform directions, and I'm in my 60s now and just love what I do and I have a lot of opportunities and a lot of things are going on, so I'm excited. Uh, before I came to Charlottesville, I was in another place I'd never been, in Richmond, uh, which also has just a, a really astonishing uh, music scene, particularly for the, the size that it is. And I was talking yesterday morning to the drummer Scott Clark, and he recounted to me something Howard Curtis, someone with whom you've also played, of course. Of course. Uh, something that Howard said. You know, Howard said you kind of come to this point in your life where either you have to go where the scene is or you have to stay where you are and make your own scene. And that's really right. That sounds like exactly what the three of you chose to do here we did. We made our own scene in a way. And, you know, not to be, I mean, it's very kind of hard to talk about one's own effect on a scene, but I know it had an effect on the scene here that these musicians from New York came down, started the band here. And actually, it was kind of funny what happened because we were used to playing with really, you know, the best players. I mean, Rick Laird was our bass player, the guy from Mahavishnu Orchestra for years. We had Kenny Kirkland play with us for a short time. Mike Cochran was a piano player in our band. For Armin Denellian was our wow. piano player. I mean, we just had the best. So we were putting the band together down here and trying to find a guitar player. And we were importing guitar players, young people who we'd sort of audition and import from. We imported a guy from Miami. We imported a guy from Chicago. And we discovered kind of I mean, we didn't. In a way, maybe we did discover Tim Reynolds, who's a huge figure in music now because of his association with his own music. He's a creative, dynamic powerhouse of a musician, a very unique, self taught, basically amazing guy. And he's got this great association with Dave Matthews. He was working in the toy department of the Kmart. And somebody said, You should check out this guitar player oh sure the guy working in the <laughs> and we played with Tim and we could not believe it never looked back he joined the band and we started realizing man you don't have to import people you get there's people everywhere 
And, um, you know, a guy, in, a guy in Richmond who had been head of the jazz department for years, Doug Richards. Well, actually, I just interviewed yesterday. So. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> Doug Richards. And said to say hi, by the way. By the way. <laughs> I mean, Doug Richards and I, I mean, our relationship, you would have to describe truly as a love relationship. <laughs> I love the man. And I just anything I can do with him, I'll drop everything to go work with that guy. He's one of the greatest musicians I've ever met. Doesn't really play anything now, but he's, in, of course, a composer and arranger and, and just brilliant. And he told me something once that always stuck with me, because I was talking about making a record, and I think I was even talking about One Bright Glance, maybe. But no, it wasn't that. It was a different record, maybe Miller's or something. I say, I'm going to record this record, but I'm a little nervous about doing it because I've just got these cats from Charlottesville, you know, and I'm wondering if I'm shooting myself in the foot, not, you know, calling Mike Richmond or, you know, Eddie Gomez, trying to get him on the record or whatever it is. And Doug said, listen, man, there's great musicians everywhere, and it's family. Play with the people in your family like Duke. And he's a scholar of Duke Ellington. He knows more about Duke Ellington than Duke Ellington, probably. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he said, those cats were in that band, some of them for 50 years, 40 years, and they just did it that way it wasn't that studio you know scene it's a different scene and i've sort of gone on that model and it's been tremendous when uh the three of you moved here were you primarily focusing on also writing a body of music creating an original body of music well i always wanted to be a composer and actually i had a lot of i was exposed you know i grew up with a father who was fanatical about music in in a beautiful way i mean the guy had incredible ears and taste he wasn't trained in, in music but i'll just give you an example of how what a great ear he was he heard Charlie Parker in the 40s after World War II and fell in love with him immediately, which is not the case with a lot of people who grew up with you know, New Orleans jazz or swing or whatever sure. it was. Lost a lot of friends over Charlie Parker. Are you kidding? And then he would say to them, because he heard the song Donna Lee, he would say, can't you hear that that's the same song as Back Home Again in Indiana? Nobody told him that, but he could hear it and he couldn't tell you why. He said, no, it's the same in some way. I don't really know why. To me, that's a huge ear. Yeah. To not have the information that it's based on the same chord progression. And just to arrive to at it on your own. just know it and not even know what a chord progression is necessarily. <laughs> anyway, I grew up with him listening to a lot of jazz, and we spent a lot of time. And he loved opera and classical music, but I wasn't really bitten with that until I was in high school and exposed to it by a great teacher at the Cambridge School of Western, Joe Schaff, who was a uh, classical violist. And when I heard Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, I knew I wanted to be a composer. But most of the time, until the 90s, I was just writing jazz. You know, I was writing for small groups or trying to write for big band. I studied in B Milford, Massachusetts, with a great, great musician named Boots Mazzulli, who Who'd is... Been in Kenton's band, right? He was in Kenton's band. Yeah, amazing, you know that. And... Uh, yeah, he, he was quite famous for a minute, but he also lived a very local life. Uh, he had a club that brought people in. He brought Duke in, and, you know, I got to stand next to Duke Ellington a couple of times in a youth band that Boots had, and we had incredible experiences with Boots. I only knew him for three years, and then he tragically died mm. of cancer. But he was my musical father in a way also and just taught me so much about music, mostly by example, 
Uh, just uh, chronologically, around what time are we talking about? 64. Okay. I met him when I was 14 in okay. 1964, and uh, we worked for three years together. He started the Milford Area Youth Orchestra, which played at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1967, right before he died. Wow. And then uh, we kept the band going for a while. We would play the Globe Jazz Festival. We opened for Duke there one time, and I stood next to Duke Ellington, speechless, backstage for 20 minutes, waiting to go on while he listened, and we listened to another band I can't remember all I can remember is standing next to this man <laughs> but I remember as a young kid seeing Duke Ellington come into one of Boots' gigs they had rented a huge hall on this lake uh, near Milford Mass and people were the band was coming in and I knew the band you know from records and I was just my mouth was hanging open and one of my friends, an older man who had been the road manager on Stan Kenton's band, was living in the town. All these guys, Boots and the, Leo Carr and the road manager, started this youth band together. And um, these guys were walking through, and one guy walked in, and my friend Leo Kern said uh, to this man, whatever happened to Johnny Hodges? And the man said, oh, he died, and then walked past. And I was thunderstruck what Johnny Hodges died and he goes that was Johnny Hodges and Duke Ellington came by and Leo greeted him they knew each other very friendly sweet guy mm. and he said to Duke why do you do this you go on these gigs I mean look, you know you could do anything he said he just pointed to the band setting up he says what am I going to do with these guys so that was pretty touching and beautiful and really affected me. Another thing that affected me, and this is a lot the way I teach, I got this from Boots, he put an ad in the paper to start this youth band and there was going to be an audition. So we pull into the parking lot and there are 54 kids sitting around outside the Sons of Italy hall where the crystal room was in the basement, Boots' club. And Boots was a laconic guy, a Sicilian, short Sicilian man, smoked a cigar and he looked at all these kids and he says, you kids all look like you're pretty serious about this. You're all in the band. He didn't even listen to anybody. And then he started rehearsing the band, and he took the older kids and put them in what he called the center band. And he took the little kids and put them in these wings out from the center band. And he wrote, he's a great arranger. Could, he was the kind of man who could sit at his kitchen table and write an arrangement out of his head. And uh, he wrote whole notes and simple parts for these kids to play. So we had this really different sound. It was just created by his generosity. The sound was created. It was a new sound. It wasn't like any big band you ever heard. And what an experience. I mean, I think one of the most difficult things for any, for any educator, and then on the other side of that, for any student, is to feel kind of acknowledged and respected in the, in the process of making music and learning music. It was music. huge. And it seems like he did that in one fell swoop, made everybody feel like they were worthy and included. Exactly. And it was an incredible feeling. So, you know, and, and the idea that everybody has something to offer, you know, it's a very democratic idea. And then, but also the idea that somebody in the know would know how to utilize this so it doesn't become mayhem. It's, it's all just so brilliant. And it was not thought out. Boots was not a, you know, an intellectual, verbal person. He just, he was a visceral guy. And so w did watching these examples uh, kind of cement your desire to, to compose and arrange and create? It did. And he taught me arranging in a very strange way. I mean, he said, come up Saturday, I'm going to give you an arranging lesson. Come at 9 in the morning. He taught me from 9 till 5 in the afternoon that day. We just sat at his desk. He sent me out for, he gave me two bucks. He said, get me a donut and a coffee and get yourself something. Come back. And there was no piano. 
it just score paper. And he said, this is, I mean, he just expected that everybody could hear like he could, which was not the case in my case. And later, it took me years to assimilate everything he was telling me. But he was, what a teacher. And he gave me a, a kind of confidence because he liked me and he liked, you know, what I was doing. And he, was, he didn't make any secret of that. But he was also very demanding and would tell you if he didn't think you were doing enough. And that was frightening to hear from him. He once told me, John, you're doing about 75% of what I'm asking you to do here. That's all he said. I felt like I'd been struck. So anyway, he's a great educator, natural. to the, the chronological tale that we're telling of uh, you and Dawn and Joss coming to Charlottesville. And I'm wondering what, you know, again, kind of what was the, what was the repertoire you were creating? What was the scene? How are you actually going about you well, know, we'd always done thing. it the same way. We wrote collectively. We'd mm. all write separately. We'd come together, share our ideas. It was very, in a way, um, wonderful and difficult. It's not easy to do this kind of communal stuff. And we were living communally in New York, um, helping to raise Dawn's kids, uh, her daughter Daphne, who's my stepdaughter now, because Dawn and I were married, and uh, I met Daphne when she was six. She's very proud of the fact of her age, so I won't hide that she's in her 40s. And she and I are just best friends. And that was one of the huge experiences of my life, too, uh, to meet Daphne. I, I actually, I was quite, you know, I mean, I'm only 15 years older than Daphne, so it would be a stretch for me to be her actual biological dad, not impossible. But when I met her, I remember thinking this, and I thought it for years, this is the first normal person I've ever met. I'm going to study normalcy with this person, and I just have learned so much from Daphne, my dear, beloved daughter, just love her. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's great. Which will tell you volumes about my family, and <laughs> yeah. et cetera, et cetera, without going into it <laughs> yeah, all. Yeah, I'm really, I'm editing out a lot of my own stories right now. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But all unhappy families are different, as we yes, learn. that's right. <laughs> unhappy, unhappy in different ways. Yeah. Uh, so education has become just a huge part of, of who you are and, and what you do. And uh, I, that also is, a, I think, a challenging decision to make, and I'm wondering how you arrived at it, how you decided that actually making it a formal part of your life rather than just... Yeah. Well, I'm going to say it's in my blood mm. because my, my grandmother was a teacher, a, truly a teacher almost in a little red schoolhouse. I grew up with a neighbor in Holliston, Massachusetts, a, a man who was the father of my friends when I was you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, about 12, and he had been my grandmother's student as a boy. 
and she went to normal school. You know, that's what they called teacher's college in those days, normal school. And he had stories about my grandmother. I loved my father's mother. She's a very gentle, uh, very wise person who was just exuded for me a kind of warmth. And she read to us all the time and just lovely person. And he would talk about what a great teacher she was and how her discipline consisted of if the kids were getting unruly and it didn't happen very often. She used to wear this pince-nez and she would take off the pince-nez and put it on her desk very deliberately and they would quail with terror. Those days are gone. <laughs> yes, they certainly are. <laughs> but anyway, so, and I had an uncle who was a professor of Spanish at uh, Slippery Rock College for many years and used to go to Mexico every summer and study, you know, do research there and stuff. So anyway, and my dad was, I will say, probably one of the greatest teachers I ever met and just a natural teacher just came out of him. He taught me so much about so much. And, uh, you know, also by example and some, not you know, negative teaching is good sure. too. <laughs> you can learn. <laughs> but um, so then, you know, I think all jazz musicians who are, you know, struggling to make a life in music will have to deal with every aspect of music. You play, you teach, you teach yourself, so you're constantly learning new things. I mean, we're all students. We have to learn constantly, or you, you're just basically dying. And then we write. So I started teaching when I was 19 just to make money. Um, I, one of my very first students, I taught out at the Cambridge School of Western after I graduated from there, and Jane Ira Bloom was a student there, and wow. she was a student of mine, and we butted heads, and we laughed about that years <laughs> later. We played some gigs together. But... Um, so I taught privately. When I came down to, and I taught in New York in a wonderful uh, setting, Johnny Cologne's East Harlem Music School, uh, which was uh, a summer school. Well, basically, I think it went all year round. We taught in a PS up in the South Bronx. And um, a lot of guys from the bands, you know, Tito's band and, and Eddie Palmieri's band, there was a trumpet player who was very famous at that time in New York named Perico a guy who had a parrot on his shoulder, tremendous trumpet player. He taught there. Sonny Brava. I mean, all wow. these awesome people were teaching in this school. And I taught the trumpet class. And I had a class. I had some, The biggest class I ever had was 60 people. It was free to the people who came. And in that large class, I had a man 66 years old and a 6-year-old boy and everybody in between. And man, you learn something about trying to figure out how to teach some trumpet to 60 people in a room. Sure. And uh, then when I moved down to Charlottesville, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate to become a member of the faculty here at UVA, which happened incrementally. When I first came, the students heard that I was in town, and they called me up. The jazz ensemble here was a student-run org organization, and I believe they were doing a concert with Bobby Brookmeyer, who is brutal, by the way, if you know Bobby Brookmeyer, and his, he's one of my favorite composers. And they were having a lot of trouble with the music. So they asked me if I'd come and help them. I did that. And they said, man, we'd like working with you. We'd like to hire you to be our director. So I became the director. In the 80s, I did that. In the early 90s, uh, Marita McClymans, uh was the chair of the music department. She loved the band. She made it part of the curriculum. So suddenly I'm teaching as a part-time teacher at UVA. And then they decided to expand the role of jazz performance here and they did a you know I had been doing it for years they had to do a national search they got all these people I think we had about 12 or 13 or 14 candidates for that and they wanted I, I see now that they really were hoping that I would get the job but they had to be 
honest about it, and uh, so they kind of wrote the job <laughs> description, I think. It has to be a tall, uh, gray-haired person <laughs> who plays the trumpet and writes for the band. Otherwise, it's wide open. No. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but they did a lot of interviews, and I think it was fairly serious. It was pretty scary for me. I got the gig, and then over the years, you know, you do... You, I've probably got the closest thing to tenure that you can have as a part-time, you know, adjunct person, sure. which is, they call it, um, expectation of continuing employment. And I love teaching here, and particularly I love it because it's not a music conservatory. And these will not mostly, for the most part, unless we really ruin their lives, which we've done a few times, they mostly won't be professional musicians. And my idea here is keep this music for your whole life because it saves your life, it helps people around you, it helps create community. Create, and, you know, if you're a diplomat or a lawyer and you can play the blues you're bound to be more in tune with human things than the person who doesn't know that and you know it definitely creates bridges to other cultures and it, it's just an awesome thing plus I'm, i have don't get me started on my theories about music and health but i really think that music is one of the most health producing human activities I, I always say jazz is my health insurance. I gave a talk to the medical school once, and they said, we need a title. I said, jazz as health insurance, <laughs> which is a very <laughs> ironic when you look at the history of jazz. But yeah. in a way, it is. I mean, I'm really convinced. I'm a huge you know, f fan of Mozart. I can't say I'm really a student of anything because I don't look at it that way, but I listen to the music and study the music. And I think Mozart survived his really difficult childhood where they traipsed him all over Europe. They dragged him everywhere in Europe in these cold castles. He was a kind of a sickly kid because he had all this music going on inside of him. And you know how you feel when you have a great tune in your head or you, you're loving what you do. Like somebody asked Duke Ellington, what's your favorite tune that you ever wrote? And he said, the one I'm working on now. And I think Mozart was always composing in his head. I mean, we know this about him. I think it really is health-producing. There's no, I mean, just from my own experience, I told you before we were on the air that I've moved, it's either 35 or 36 times, I can't remember, and, uh, you know, been in a lot of weird situations, usually been poor, and there's absolutely no way I would have survived the life that I have had without, and my life in many ways has been, I mean, it's still been a first world life, so, you know, it's yep. it's been greatly more privileged, and sure. I'm white and male, Yes. but even so, there's no way I would have, I would be even sitting here without music, because yeah. music was kind of the... It's not just a refuge, but it is that. But it is also the thing um, – when I was talking to Doug, I said, you know, when I know that I need like a, a an infusion of joy, for example, I know I can put on St a Stevie Wonder tune. Exactly And it right. just – it changes the day. It just switches it changes the Changes everything around. inside yourself. Yeah. You know, I remember walking out of a store downtown in Charlottesville one time, and they had just – it was a store that sold – Innisfree, they sold all this craft work from third world countries. It's a beautiful store. And she was always playing different music. Uh, and she had been playing a compilation of some South American music that did really beautiful music. And I walked outside and I had this last tune in my head that had been playing on the CD, this groove, you know, just this, you know, eternal groove. It's like being at a side of a river or something. It's just going forever, you know, the Colorado River, this groove. And it was winter, and suddenly these little snowflakes started coming down, and I just wanted to scream. I felt so happy, and I realized right at that moment, this is health. This cures cancer. This this takes those you know those uh, pathogens and just zaps them when you feel this way. It's like bubbles in a in a glass or something. It's just amazing. 
I agree with you. talked about this with Doug Richards and I'd love to have your perspective too and that is the question of how how as an educator you know in an institution I mean in these big buildings with thick walls how we communicate the the non-quantifiable parts of music to students how do we talk about finding the passion and finding the joy in music and and what to listen for other than the chord progressions you know how to listen for the the soul of it and can you talk about how you approach that well the first thing I tell them is to watch out for me because I'm in the jazz education racket (laughs) and it's a racket (laughs) and if you want to know about jazz you don't learn it in a school you learn it from the music period and you study the lives of the people a little bit really try to get close to those lives I know when I learned about this music from my father I mean we were nuts about it we'd sit and play drums to the records drum brushes on a tray I grew up with that We'd go out in the woods. He'd start talking about some Billie Holiday thing. He'd say, Ben Webster's solo on this is so incredible. He'd say, you know, he'd sing the solo. That's another huge thing. Sing all the music. That's huge. That's why what Robert Jospin, Joss is doing is so important for people, this learn-to-groove thing, is it's all about drumming, rhythm, and singing. And if you, you, know, you can play your instrument up one side and down the other. If you can't do those things, you're not... In it, what, and why is that? Say, say more. Well, about those that. are the es- those are the e- that's the essence of music. Music is time and pitch, and they say time is king, sound is queen. So time, it's rhythm. And listen, I'll just put out my definition of rhythm right here on your interview. I'm I'm proud of this. I came up with this teaching middle school when I when I first moved here. I taught in five schools. I taught at the Tandem School. It was a middle school and a high school. I taught at St. Anne's Belfield, a high school. I taught at uh, JMU, VCU, and UVA. And I went because I was trying to survive and trying to make sense out of my life. And talking to my middle school students, I came up with this one day. What is rhythm? We were trying to talk. Tell me. They'd talk about the heartbeat, the pulse, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but what what about the trumpet player in the Beethoven Symphony that's counting? 99, 2, 3, 4, 100, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, ba-ba. And he's just got to play that just at the right moment. Isn't that ba-ba? That's all about rhythm and all that silence leading up to it. And I said, rhythm is the frequency and duration of events. Simply put, when stuff happens and how long it lasts. And that's rhythm. And on that definition, there is nothing in the known universe that isn't rhythmic in nature. So rhythm is it. Everything is rhythm. When people start to realize that, you know, people can't move. They can't move their butts or they can't move their feet. I had to learn to move my feet and clap the clave to be in a Latin band. And I had to sit in my apartment, white man that I am, and, and learn to do it like riding a bicycle so I wouldn't get fired from my first Latin gig. 
is you have to stand in the back and sway with the guys and move your feet right and clap the clave. And I wasn't coordinated enough to do it because <laughs> I had never been exposed to it. And being exposed to that, I realized that when you learn these basic musicianship things, you, basic, you change your neurology. Your whole being is a different person. And I realized that about practicing the trumpet. Anything you can't do you know, play augmented chords in this configuration in all 12 keys at a really fast tempo. If you can't do that, and then you practice it, and now in two weeks you can do it, you're a different guy. It's a different human being. That's why music is so transformative and so amazing. So I try to tune kids into this. I also say, I, I have a speech I give them. I say, the basic posture of a student, and we are all students, is to be defensive because the test is Tuesday. Can I go to the bathroom? Did you practice? You know, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with being defensive is it tends to make you want to show your strength and sweep your weaknesses under the rug. But you'll never grow if you sweep your weaknesses under the rug. I've been doing this my whole life, dragging these weaknesses, kicking and screaming out from under the rug so that I can improve something or I'm being confronted to do that by something in my life, whether it's musical or not. But then you listen to Miles. And you hear his mistakes, and you realize an artist is never defensive. An artist lets it all hang out. An artist says, so what? An artist says even more profane things that we won't necessarily repeat, <laughs> but read Miles' autobiography. <laughs> right, I mean, exactly. you know, he's got a great rap on the critics, and it ends with, you know, read it. It's yes. awesome. We don't have to say it on the podcast. <laughs> so I go there. Then I say, you got to listen. We make them come and listen. We make them play, even if they don't feel like they can play. Uh, one of my great joys in teaching is to teach classical musicians improvising because they already play their instruments so well and they think they can't do it. And it's just like a, a, like a bubble. It's like a membrane away from being able to just go, wow, I can do this. But before they do it, they're terrified. And music is amazing that way. You know, it's the one thing that will never hurt you. You'll never break it, unless you're playing with Charles Mingus and you piss him off. <laughs> you know, you'll never break your arm playing music, but you feel fear that is akin to the fear that you feel jumping out of an airplane. Sure. Bodily harm. What's that all about? It just shows how deep music is. Another thing you learn is it's hard to teach. Okay, you've got to stop me at a certain point because I will go on about this, but, you know, I got very moved in the middle school and the high, tandem school when I saw the art room and I saw the kids parading through the art room, making things, doing things, ruining the materials, having fun, taking something home to their parents. Look what I made. Then you go to the music room. Here's your second clarinet part, sweetie. Don't screw it up. You know, why shouldn't we learn the language of music? In Mozart's day, everybody knew how to compose. They knew theory. They knew what it was all about. Classical musicians used to improvise. Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach were best known as improvisers in their day. They were famous for that. What happened? Well, that's a theory. Uh, there's a man in this town, Stephen Nachmanovich, a brilliant man, who wrote a book called Free Play. And uh, he has a theory about why improvisation went out of classical music. You think it he thinks it has to do with specialization and the Industrial Revolution. Could be. Or recording, and then people learned the cadenza from Fitz Chrysler, and nobody improvised the cadenza anymore. But... Um, you well, know, I, and I'll just, if I can break in for one second to say, regular listeners to this show will be groaning already because they know what's coming. But I say probably about every four episodes that I think all all kids start out knowing how to improvise because you have no choice when you have no technical language on your instrument. It's the same as talking in any exactly. conversation. This is what we're having right now. 
we're improvising. We are following a thousand rules that we learned. Sure. And we are not thinking of one of them. And then in, in at least certainly in my experience, and I think in many other people's, in the realm of music, you're then taught that, well, this is exactly how you do it. Exactly. And then if you're lucky, maybe you get to reconnect with what you had as a child later in your life. And I think most people probably aren't that lucky. But, I mean, I really do think it is not a, it's not a new skill. It's a remembrance of what you had originally. Well, you know, you know the verb educate, I think it's educate, the Latin verb. It mean, you, I learned this from a movie, not to sound so erudite, from the prime of Miss Jean Brody, great movie. Yeah, and she is. says, it means to lead out. In other words, your knowledge is already innate. Education is you bring it out. And mm. in music, that's what it is. When you, that's what I say. Teach little kids the language of music, intervals, chords, scales. Create, have fun. And I've also found that if you start kids off at right around 10, 11, 12 years old in music theory, they take to it like ducks to water. If you wait till after puberty, it becomes harder and harder. And then when it's, people are older, it's really hard to teach theory to adults, by and large. Well, it's just like if you move overseas with young kids, your young kids are going to learn whatever language it is long before you do. It's open. (laughs) But I think part of the reason why it's hard for older people to learn the language of music is because we mystify music and we think it's, it's such a heavy and innate thing. It's almost like sex. And honestly... Boots, in my very first lesson, I won't give you the very raw language that he gave this to me. In, There's no FCC guide about podcasts, so feel free to just okay. say what he actually well, said. Well, I can't. I'm not going to say it because it's just too embarrassing. Okay. It embarrassed <laughs> me at the time, and it is embarrassing. I tell it one-on-one to some of my students. But basically, he asked me in a very crude way if I had hit puberty yet. And I said, yes. And he said, that's how you play your horn. Do you know what I'm talking about? I was like, ah, what are you talking about? And, but I really got it, got the yeah. message. It's sexual. It's visceral. He said, hunger. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. ask you this so uh this is another thing that comes up on this show a lot Uh, for me the the kind of point of this show is to have conversations with people who think at a very high level about music but have them in a way that brings in everyone because the listeners to the show by and large are not people from music schools they're just folks right they're they're people like me and i think one of the great impediments to becoming a fan of jazz is that Many jazz musicians have created this idea of the kind of like jazz priesthood. There's this wall, and if you don't have a lot of specialized knowledge, you can't enter in. You can't get past this wall. And I think, of course, it is true that if you have specialized knowledge, there are things that you can discover in the music that someone without it can't. But 
the music can be also be appreciated just on its own merits, just as music, just as something that hits you as a person. But I wonder how we, and this is a huge question, obviously, how we do a better job of not terrifying people about this music and just kind of bringing them in and saying, yeah. it's okay, just That's a good question. Listen. I mean, that's a real question, but I'm going to really be uh, profane against jazz and say a lot of jazz is self-indulgent and boring. I totally agree. And that's part of the problem. Not that it's so daunting. It's so damn boring. And if you don't know what's going on, you can sit there and just think, what? I mean, Chris Rock did a great routine on jazz, going to a jazz club, hating the music, watching the musicians. And then he, and then he said this thing I'll never forget. He goes, and then what's that thing when they, they look at each other and they laugh? What's that all about? But, of course, that's what they do. And, actually, I saw Paul Blaze trio in, at the Blue Note uh, at the Birdland years ago. And uh, there were 200 people there. And they played... Uh, only free music, Gary Peacock, Paul Motion, and Paul Blay. Only free music, which is one of the most self-indulgent and boring kinds of music, potentially, that you could ever want to hear. Every piece they played was probably between four and six minutes long. They never s- started with any discussion or any count or anything. they just look at each other. They'd end on a dime. It sounded composed, and they'd laugh after every tune. They'd laugh. And the audience was so serious. Listen to this. And, and my table, and actually I was there with a bunch of people from Charlottesville, a former bass player in the jazz ensemble whose life was ruined here, Lisa Metzikappa. She's got a band out in San Francisco. Awesome musician. In fact, you might want to interview her sometime. I'm heading out west. So Lisa is just a brilliant musician. We have, um, we're going to do a concert here with three ladies, we hope, who went on to really play at a high level. Kate Dunton on piano. Uh, Kathy Olson on baritone sax and Lisa. These girls don't know this yet, but we're going to we're ca- going to call them and try to get this. <laughs> You've to heard happen. it here first, right? Yeah. You've heard it here first. <laughs> but anyway, she was there, and she had gotten us all in. She was writing for a Staten Island newspaper after she graduated. At that point, a bunch of musicians were at the table, and we were all laughing too because the music was so lighthearted and brilliant. You couldn't help but laugh. And Paul Blay walked straight over to our table after he got off the bandstand because he could feel there was energy. Everybody else was just looking at this like this was, you know, Stonehenge or something and very serious. But anyway, so your question. So what do you do? Okay, one thing you do is, it is, I love to talk to lay people about listening to jazz and what to listen for because that's how I grew up with my dad. He was always teaching me how to listen. And I found that people, once you just tell them Listen to the bass, listen to the rhythm section, listen to how they play together, listen to the form, listen for structure. Listen. These are the things that are going on. Those are the priesthood things, but they're not that difficult. People can get tuned into that. The other thing is um, the jazz music itself has a kind of uh, elitism about it that I've never cared for, and a lot of younger, you know, I'm 62, but I call myself a younger musician, and I think of myself as a young person still, actually. But a lot of people in my generation and even younger, although there are some really young players who are very conservative at this point about jazz, no question about that either. But people in my generation, especially in the 60s, we fell in love with rock. We fell in love with Stevie Wonder. We fell in love with the Beatles. We fell in love with Jimi Hendrix. And, we, and then we listened to classical music. And we realized this music is all the same. At the highest level, it's all the same. It's just brilliant music. It's just, you know, they have a joke, you know, 
improvise music, you don't know what it is until you've done it, and compose music is, you can't do it until you know what it is. But it's really two <laughs> sides of the same coin, you know, it's, it's, it's really... So anyway, I think part of it, I think it, a lot of it comes back to singing. If you want, first of all, be merciful as a jazz artist. Try to play, I mean, I don't like the idea of trying to make jazz palatable by playing rock tunes all the time. I mean, this, I heard Jason Moran on NPR, and people called, and he says, yes, we do. You know, it gets so old, and it's so, um, in a way, self-serving. It's so obviously self-serving, and there's that, you know, we love Herbie Hancock and what he did, but no jazz musician's going to say, I, I wanna, all I want to do is play Watermelon Man. You know, we get so sick of playing Watermelon Man or playing these little funk tunes that, oh, I recognize that. On the other hand, don't play obscure crap forever, you know. Just try to make a statement. Try to understand what art is. It's all about proportionality. It's about communication. It's also about expression. So there's a certain forbidding quality to it. it also, because you have to be honest and express. That's not for everybody. You also have to recognize that art is not easy. Art is not what we see. Art is not what's called art a lot of times. Jazz is not what's called jazz a lot of times. And the truth of it is, it takes the mass of people 30 to 50 years to catch up with an innovation in an art form. Witness, you know, Van Gogh. Witness Beethoven. There's a wonderful book, Nicholas Slonimsky, The Lexicon of Musical Invective. All the bad reviews that the Masterworks got. You know, <laughs> Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. This sucks. He's ruining music. He's killing music. They call Train the anti-swing. Right. He couldn't play the blues. He couldn't play a ballad. So he made Coltrane plays the blues and Coltrane ballads. <laughs> but I think what it comes down to more than anything is teaching people how to move their bodies and break out of that tension and that politeness that we have. I mean, I had a wonderful music teacher at Harvard, who uh, Louise Voskershen, who taught uh, our harmony class, and she's teaching us figured bass and all this classical stuff. She's a concert pianist, went to school with Bernstein. She said something to us one day that I will never forget. You know what's wrong with you boys? You're too polite. That was amazing. <laughs> and she was the one who actually encouraged me to quit school because she knew that I wasn't loving school. And at the end of one of our semesters, we all had to write a piece. And one of the kids in the class, Tony Ackerman, wrote this piece. And there was a 16-bar trumpet solo with chord changes. So we're up playing the piece, and I start blowing on those chord changes. And she comes running up to the front of the room and stopped the music. And she says, show me that on the music where that is that you're playing, that you just played. I said, well, it's these chord changes. She'd never seen chord changes written out on a piece of music. Wow. I gave her 20 records to listen to. She loved Herbie Hancock, Art Tatum. She'd never heard this stuff in 1969 or 70 or sure. whatever this was. That's how divided the world was back in that day. And she said, man, if you can do this, she didn't say, man. She said, you, you're not happy in school. You should leave school. She, asked, she said, you need a manager? She was very <laughs> impressed with it, you know, sweet of her. But she had, you know, I had struggled in her classes. I, you know, finding the time to sit and work on figured bass for hours a day. I was trying to practice some trumpet and play some jazz. So anyway, I think singing and moving your body and not being too polite and just getting into the music let go there hmm. and listen i'll tell you one other thing i mean this goes on and on but i will tell you i had a huge experience of this when i was 15 16 years old i joined the union when i was 14 started doing gigs and that was great for me and i was with older musicians all the time and i my great loves in music at that point were charlie parker and miles davis i loved them 
Cass was saying, John, you got to increase your knowledge of music and get into Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. I could not stand Coltrane. I would literally pick the needle up off the record and move it over the Coltrane solo and get to the next solo on the Miles Davis record, Cannonball, I loved. You know, Red Garland, great. Miles, Coltrane, ugh, couldn't stand this guy. One night, I'm sitting in my house listening to, I think, Milestones. Too lazy to get up off my butt and move the needle up over the Coltrane solo. And I tell you, I had a conversion experience. And it was so profound that I always remembered it and referenced it with students and stuff. And it was like, you know, it was like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus or wherever he was. And all of a sudden, in a nanosecond, I suddenly heard it what Train was doing. And what I could say I heard was the melody. I heard his melody and, and the swing in it, which I never could hear before. And it was like nothing more than those, what they call magic eye art, you know, where you have this paint dripped on a thing and then there, you cross your eyes and suddenly you see a 3D image. That's what it was like, mm-hmm. exactly like that. And then I just couldn't get enough Coltrane that night. I played every record that I had with Coltrane on it, and then I was, I think I went over to some musette, you know, Ar- Arabic music that was a little bit similar because that energy, that, you know, that sort of, the ethnicity of it, which was so uh, beyond America. There's something really beyond America, so universal about the way train plays, and it's so reminiscent, of course, of Indian classical music, raga, and you know, Middle Eastern music and African music. It's all in there with Coltrane. It's just what is that thing, that Coltrane thing, and and it's um, singing, the way it's singing. I could hear the singing, the vocal quality. You know, I loved Billie Holiday and Ella and Bessie Smith and Jimmy Rushing. I loved. Mm. And, you know, that, and all those guys would always say, all the instrumentalists would say, listen to the singers, copy the singers, this is vocal music. And I re- that's nowhere more true than in Coltrane's playing. So I heard it. And th- that conversion experience made me want to open up other people to jazz because of the joy that you can get, not because, oh, let's appreciate this sure. fine art, you know. Right. <laughs> Won't you listen to me? Won't you turn that from me? 
you mentioned earlier in the interview that uh, through about the 90s, you were primarily writing for small groups. And I know you've written some very large works. Uh, yeah, I got to write, years. finally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, will you talk about that? About that yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, I always wanted to write opera, which I have never done. And I'm now I'm, I'm determined that before I kick the bucket, I'm going to write opera, I hope. I had a little taste of that because I got a commission a couple of years ago. There's a group at Roanoke College called Kandinsky Trio, and they have really been, uh, I mean, they've put me on my own personal map as a composer because they commissioned music from me, and they actually played the music and actually wanted to learn. And when I hear classical music in my head, I hear jazz phrasing. I don't hear jazzy music for classical music. I just hear the phrasing that I grew up with sure. and why shouldn't classical musicians be able to play this and you know what they will in 20 or 30 years when enough classical musicians have listened to Bird and Coltrane there will be no question you can just say a la train you can say swing man on tropo you know <laughs> swing but not too much but you know but nowadays what I write sounds pretty corny and uh, and um Cranky, you know. It's uh, what do I want to say? It's it's awkward for them, you know. I remember writing a brat, one of my early chamber music pieces. Where I got a commission to write for a brass quintet, and I had the fourth movement. It started out with this bass line with the tuba and the trombone playing this bass line, and the bass. I'll, I'll sing it to you. It's a thing in seven. Bop, ba uba do de do do bop, ba uba didn't do be uba do op, ba uba do de do do op, ba uba didn't do be uba do op. So the question was. Do we swing it or do we play it straight? I said, well, it's kind of swung. Da, ba, ba, do, da, da. No, 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 no. I guess it's more straight. Da, 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 do, 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 da, da. You know, I could never, I couldn't even get these cats, no offense to them, to put bop where it goes, which is the, you know, people have to say jazz is all about the eighth notes, but it's really about the quarter notes. It's about Louis Armstrong. Or Miles does the same thing, but in a different way. You know, it's different. Sorry, probably the wrong key. I don't have perfect pitch. <laughs> but anyway, so getting people to hear this. But anyway, the way I got finally a chance to do this was uh, through Dave Matthews, who a, was a friend and a wonderful cat. You know, he was the bartender at Miller's. We've had that gig on Thursday nights at Miller's longer than anybody can remember. But we know it was since before the drummer who's playing with us now, Devon Harris, was born. Wow. So we, we know that. That could be the longest-running jazz gig in history. It could go in the Guinness Book of World Records because we might have been doing it for 30 years at this point. But anyway, that's another story. But um, Dave was the bartender, and actually I, you know, I didn't really have that much to do with him, except he heard our music all the time, and he used Carter and Leroy, who he heard at Miller's for years before he had his own band. We were playing down there, and drinking down there, and having a blast playing. And um, so at a certain point, uh, somebody wanted Dave to do a gig with the Richmond Symphony, and I was put for, forward as the person to arrange this stuff, and I'd never arranged for that size project. And it was, they asked me to do it more than a year before the project was due, and I said, can you give me a couple of months to give you an answer on this? And so I studied scores, because I knew classical music and love it, and I love Stravinsky. And I, I looked at a lot of Beethoven and Stravinsky, and I was just checking out these scores, and it was great for me. And I was saying to myself, man, I can do this. I see this. I see what they're doing. You know, I don't mean to presume that there's any great genius about it, but you know what? 
great art also is, it, it is genius, the inspiration, but the actual craft of doing it a lot of times, it's like cabinetry or it's simple common sense what works. Put this instrument low. It's all the same 12 notes. It's the same 12 notes, the same, you know, centuries of music on the same 12 notes and the same (laughs) seven diatonic (laughs) notes in the scale. And I mean, how do we get all this different music? And by the way, we get it all by rhythm and by different textures that get used. But it's a lot rhythm. It's a lot how this stuff is, you know, rhythmicized. Anyway, so I looked at this and decided with hubris that I could do this. And I actually had amazing hubris because I knew that if I tried to do this project by hand, I'd make a ton of mistakes and it would be kind of a mess. So even though I'd written a lot of big band charts by hand, I was just, I said, I've got to get a program. So I got, I'd never even turned on a computer or done any word processing. For a year and a half, I could not deal with what save as meant. I mean, just learning that was an epiphany for me because I realized how the older mind just people wall out this knowledge that people are trying to, John, save as, save as. (sighs) Every time I'd hear that, I'd be like, cross fingers, you know, (laughs) save as. It's so nuts. It's amazing I didn't lose a lot of stuff. But people helped me who knew the program, and I knew how to write. So when you know, you know, if you know the the content, you can learn a program. That's what we learned. That's why little kids can, can get it. So I wrote 10 arrangements for the Richmond Symphony, and I had George Manahan was the conductor, and he called me up and very sternly said to me, listen, people write nothing for my orchestra for these, uh, for these Pops concerts. Don't write goose eggs, meaning you know, lots of big, fat, long notes for my orchestra. These people can play. I want you to write some music, and I want to see those scores. <clears throat> so I wrote, he said, I want to see you with four scores at this date. You know, so I started working my butt off writing this music on the computer, got the scores printed out. I got there a great trumpet player who I know from Doug Richards' big band, uh, Great American Music Ensemble, Roy Muth, who is, I have an altar to Roy Muth, as many people do, because he mentored me through this. Anytime I called this guy up with a problem, he'd sit with the, on the phone with me for 45 minutes. He wanted to help. He's one of those people. Again, a lot like Boots. And music is full of these people who the spirit of giving is so huge in music. It's just amazing. He helped me. And uh, I took these scores to George Manahan. George was moving out of his apartment. He had left a piano and a piano bench and a boombox. That was all that was in the apartment. This dude freaked me out. I gave him transposed scores. The orchestra manager was on one side. Dave Matthews' manager, who was my friend who got me this gig, Ross Hoffman, was on the other side, turning the pages of these huge scores. George Manahan pushes play on the Dave Matthews CD and starts sight-reading the score at the piano, laughing and talking to me the entire time. It wasn't perfect playing. He got everything. At one point, I had made a mistake with the printing and went off. Whoops, what happened there? He's <laughs> laughing. But he was, he was into it because I really tried hard to write you know, difficult music. And I really cut my teeth on that project. After that, you know, I just get various commissions, mostly local again. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of locality because it can, things can happen where you are. I remember once years ago going to the NEA and talking to a guy there and trying to raise money for a youth band in Charlottesville and get a grant. So I was talking to one of the grant officers there 
and a real sweet man. I don't remember who he was. And I was, we got into a good rap, so I was start, sort of lamenting moving out of New York, expressing regrets about, you know, oh, my career, blah, blah, blah. He said, hey, you are exactly where you should be, which I thought was a bit presumptuous at the time. But I agree with him now. Uh, every life is different. Sure. You know, live your life. Orson, uh, not Orson, well, uh, oh, I always forget the cat's name, the great writer. Um, H.G.? No, are you talking no, about no, a Wells? It, or who you ta- no, I'm not talking about Wells. You know, the guy who went to prison, he was gay, he went to prison in the 19th century in England. You know who oh, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. His name's going out of my head. That's horrible. Uh, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, thank you. Oh, my <sighs> thank God. God. That goes out uh. of my head. So Oscar <laughs> Wilde goes out of my head. Anyway, I love Oscar Wilde. But, um, but anyway, he said a wonderful thing. He said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Right. <laughs> Which is a great, you know, typical... <laughs> But anyway, um, so so then uh, I got a few orchestral commissions. I wrote a piece for the youth orchestra in Charlottesville called Blues for Orchestra, which was all blues, three different movements of the blues. A piece that I like, actually. I thought it was a pretty good piece. Then I got a commission from UVA to write a piece, and I wrote a concerto for quintet and orchestra, you know, inspired by Bartok's concerto for orchestra. And it was with the Freebridge Quintet with the orchestra, which is a jazz quintet. And I got excited about pairing each of the members of the quintet with different musicians in the orchestra, and they would do things together and sort of shadow each other and trade. Really beautiful. There was a beautiful segment in that with Joss and Ijen Fang, who's our percussion professor, mm. an amazing woman. And, uh, she, you know, I wrote her part, but they traded fours and eights, and she was playing marimba and all this hellacious stuff on the marimba, and he was improvising on his drums. Great stuff, fun. And then the Kandinsky Trio, mm. uh, they commissioned a piece. My first piece for them was a, t- a piece called Natural Bridge. And they did it, they wanted it for um, jazz guitar. They wanted Larry Coriel. And they wanted uh, Paul Langosh, who was best friends with the cellist, uh, Alan Weinstein, in the, in the Kandinsky Trio. They've been friends since kindergarten. But um, Paul was on the road with... Um, with uh, Tony Bennett at that point. We couldn't get him. So Pete Sparr from Charlottesville played the piece originally. And we had uh, difficulties over the time with Larry Coriel, which we'll just leave it at that. And he quit, or basically quit. He was offended by some of my comments, actually, and left. And then we ended up with Kurt Rosenwinkel, who wanted to do it. And that was amazing. And we met him in New York for a uh, sort of at Chamber Music America Convention. It was sort of like the premiere of the piece, although we'd performed it before, but in New York was. And there was Kurt, and he met me in the lobby of the hotel, and he's going, hey, man, I like your piece. You know, I started singing different parts of it. It was quite a different uh, experience. And he stayed with it. He's performed it a couple of times, and we just recorded it with him. Oh, great. They got a big grant to record um, two of my pieces, that piece and a piece called Silent Faustus, which is a suite I wrote for them based on two hours of music I wrote for a different ensemble for the silent film Faustus by Murnau, who's a German filmmaker. Okay. 1926 film. And that was a, that was a blast, right, in that music. Two hours of music. We had uh, a drummer, Eric Stassner, just actually sat in with us. He's been away. He came to Charlottesville last night. Did you hear him sit in at the end of the first set? I didn't, set? unfortunately. Killing. Yeah. He's a great drummer. He's an orchestral conductor and a first call, you know, symphony, a little bit like Howard Curtis, you know, symphony sure. player, great jazz drummer. So he played traps and timpani and orchestral chimes and marimba. And then we had Pete on bass, who's orchestral and jazz, and he's arco and pits. 
a, a, a sax player, Bobby Reed, who's a brilliant musician who lives around here, plays with Bruce Hornsby's band. We we both played in that band for years, and now he's playing in it. He played, I think, seven instruments in the piece, and I played trumpet and flugel and mutes. And we had the guy who did sound is Greg Howard, who's a Chapman stick player, and he's right. actually an amazing, also a great musician, somebody worth talking to. And uh, he did sound, and from the soundboard played Chapman stick and did the harmon, you know, did the harmonic part, the chord part, so to speak, for the movie. Anyway, so Kandinsky are finishing up, the Kandinsky's are finishing up this recording, which apparently is going to come out on Omnitone oh, Records, great. on a label, actually. Yeah. And it's two of my pieces and one Gunther Schuller piece, a p- a piano quintet with a violist. But I got my first taste of um, opera through the Kandinsky's, too, because they do another project, which is an amazing project. They commission These people are so proactive about new music. They commission all the time. For their 25th anniversary, they're going to commission 25 two-, three-, four-minute pieces. 25 different composers are going to get to write for them. And so they commissioned four composers to do this project called the Beatdown Project because they found this guy in Baltimore, also a brilliant self-taught musician named Shodike, who is a beatbox artist. And he does things with the Baltimore Symphony now, but he's a cat from hip-hop. You know, he's a hip-hop person, a brilliant man. And every piece had to include a beatbox artist. I mean, I talked to this guy on the phone for 30 seconds or maybe a minute or two minutes. Shodike, this is John Durth. I'm writing this piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, listen... Uh, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that. It might be this kind of a groove. We started singing back to each other little grooves, and in 30 seconds I know this cat could do anything. (laughs) So I just left a big space for him. And he learned it all by ear. He doesn't read music. It worked like a charm. But each piece had a different soloist, and my piece had a lyric soprano. And Alan said, I want uh, you to use profane and sacred texts for this. I want sacred and profane texts so I set two poems by a Persian poet named Kabir, mm-hmm. and I set the last paragraph of Molly Bloom's soliloquy in James Joyce's <laughs> Ulysses, which is that famous paragraph where she ends by saying, yes, I said yes. Awesome. And I got to hear that with actually two different singers, and it was incredible. And oh, especially the second girl who sang it, um, and I wish I could remember her name, Ariana. I don't remember her last name. was not only just a killer singer, a uh, great opera singer, but she was an actress. And she looked Irish. She's got red hair. She's a tall, beautiful woman. And she sang these Molly Bloom words with so much fire and passion and anger and beauty. I just couldn't believe it. And it's, I was sold on the piece. And before that, I said, ah, this piece is all right. I don't know. When I heard that, I, it freaked me out. Oh, that's I had to play right after her as the soloist in another piece. I could hardly get out of my chair. I was so knocked out. But anyway, so I'm very happy to be writing and doing this different kinds of music. I'm just about to record a CD of musicians who are associated with the Miller's gig, mm. and that'll be. I'm going to write all the. I'm writing all the music for that because basically I don't want to deal with copyright. So sure. <laughs> I'm just going to write a bunch of stuff and That's have a great. bunch of musicians on it. I'm excited about that.
So for folks who come to Charlottesville, uh, they should come on a Thursday, and uh, you hold court at Miller's. And are there other opportunities uh, this summer for folks to check you out in other locations? Well, we also play locally um, every first Saturday at Fellini's with a great quartet. And it's basically Pete Spar, the bass player from Miller's, Devon, the drummer from Miller's, and a pianist named Bob Hallahan, mm. who's a great, great jazz pianist. He used to be at VCU. Yeah, he also, was at right? VCU, yeah. and he was here, and he was the original founding member of the um, Freebridge Quintet. Okay. But he got a full-time job at JMU over the mountain, so we don't see him as much, but he's one of my favorite pianists. And We should mention doing, JMU is James Madison James University. James Madison right? University. The, the area, yeah. Sorry about that. That's and, all right. Uh, yeah, Bob and I have been playing together. You know, for, it's again this legacy of being able to play with the same people year after year after year for decades with Bob. And I want to just say this is true of Bob and true of many musicians: Howard Curtis, Robert Jospe. These are we are older now, and I have watched these guys, and they always improve. They get better. They practice. It's not like business as usual. It's always something new. Check this out. I'm working on this. And that's the student part. You know, we're just dragging those weaknesses from out, out from under the rug and trying to get better. I'm still trying to figure out how to play this damn trumpet. <laughs> and, you know, teaching at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is a music conservatory and a tremendous school, I mean, I learned so much from my students. And I know that's a cliche, but that is true. Even when I give them lessons, and I, I get so excited in my own lessons, and I think, I'm going I'm to do that. But I have students at VCU, like, say, some of my classical students have inspired me to go get the Hindemith, you know, Sonata and learn that, or Victor Haskins, I just want to say that name. Victor Haskins is a young trumpet player who's going to, I think, he's setting the world on fire, and I've never met a more serious musician and student of music and trumpet player, and mm. I have learned so much about trumpet from the way this guy has learned from others. And then Rex Richardson is there, who's one of the great artists on the trumpet, a classical trumpet player and jazz player, played with Joe Henderson and a dear friend, and he's helped me. So we're always learning. Uh, my guest is the trumpeter, the composer, educator, John Durth. Oh, I did think of one thing I wanted to ask you, which is about your last name. What's the Durth. etymology okay. of your last name? All right, I'll tell you what So it we is. should tell people it's spelled D apostrophe Earth. Earth, yeah. yeah, like the planet. Well, I grew up with the name Durth with no apostrophe. And I, first of all, as an oversensitive kid, I never liked the name because of its meaning, a lack of something. Sure. Although I've come later to really appreciate that because what you don't get sometimes is a lot better than what you do get. <laughs> but also, I love the name because it has so many other words in it. If you think about that, there are many words that you can form out of that name. Well, that name, though, was a changed name. The original name from England was Death or Death. And it was always changed because nobody wanted to be Mr. Death. Right. You know, John Death. I mean, my mother once gave me a, a, a birthday present, a gravestone rubbing that a friend of hers had done of an ancestor of mine in Massachusetts, John Death. Maybe it was Death. But anyway. Well, when you start your metal band, though, that's going to be perfect. <laughs> perfect, right. <laughs> and in fact, one of my friends, Glenn Wilson, who's another amazing musician, lives in the Midwest now, baritone player. I mean, he's one of the great musicians on the planet. When I got, we started the gig at, with Bruce Hornsby together, and then Bobby Reed replaced Glenn on saxophone. Glenn used to call, he said, hey, you're in Bruce Hornsby's band, you're a rock star now, you need a new name, Jimmy Death. <laughs> and he's, he would always call me Jimmy Death. <laughs> but anyway, um, when, I, you know, I, when I knew it was a changed name, this thing happened in my early 20s. 
I don't know what happened. Somebody either wrote me a check with the apostrophe or it ended up on some Latin record with an apostrophe. I don't really remember how it happened. But when I saw that apostrophe, I said, I'm going to change my name to that and be Earth with an apostrophe. I've kind of regretted it. Somebody said once, it's like a tattoo. You've sort of tattooed your name with this apostrophe. It's just a big pain in the butt. But I've done it, and I've sort of kept it, and it's just sort of like a little bit of a... It's just, I don't know what it is. It's a little bit of self-creation in that, I guess. So the etymology is it's really kind of a BS thing. It doesn't really mean... It, you know, it sounds like a French name, but of course it's not because it's an English word, earth. Sure. The fact is, though, there are many names from the name death that have apostrophes because they're, they use other... Like there's a Belgian name, Diath. And in fact, there's a great movie with John Hurt called Love and Death in Long Island, which is an amazing movie. And the character in that is named Diath, and yeah. it's the same name. It's, a, it's, it's like a, a, the etymology is the same. It sure. comes from that. He was a professor at Oxford who has this homosexual uh, obsession with a sitcom star. He sees this boy on the... On the you know this young actor and he moves he goes to Long Island and tries to stalk this guy. It's an amazing movie. John Hurt is a genius. <laughs> yeah, he really is. But anyway, uh, so that's the etymology of it. And I just thought, and also I will say, you know, without laboring it too much, that you know we both laughed about this. So I had a very, um, you know, sort of checkered childhood. There was a lot of my family that was troublesome, and I always felt that I just, you know. I would love to have not been a dearth in some respects. So changing it was just sort of like a change into being a new, kind of a new person. Instead of saying, you're an artist, John Dearth. Sure. Well, uh, I don't know if I've ever said this on this show before, but um, Crane is actually my third last name. Okay. And I, had, I, was, I was born with one name and then adopted and I had another name. Oh, and then man. when I became a musician, I wanted to do kind of the same thing. And almost I moved out west. I changed my name. I just kind of almost created this new person. And everything I've done in my professional life, I've done with this new name. In fact, if you try to – if you Google – if you attempt to Google me, the only thing you can find is Jason Crane. That's great. You can't find the other things. And to me, it was always – there was something about it. I always felt like this person I made, I, the things that are associated with this person – are the things that I did for exactly. good or ill. The for mistakes I Ill. made are beautiful. also this person's. Yeah, beautiful. But they're I my things. That. Yeah. So I really resonate with what you were yeah, saying. Yeah, I remember Dr. John saying in an interview once, never tell the truth about yourself. Always make up new lies whenever they give you, whenever they do interviews, which I promise I'm not doing that. But anyway, and I, my mother too, you know, her family were all Russian Jews and her last name was Long. And I'm sure that they came, I don't, I don't even know that I ever learned her real family's name but in, it probably wasn't long but it yeah. was probably a long name and they said oh you have a long name you'll be long right exactly you know, who knows or whatever it was well my guest is john dearth and uh, it's been just an absolute pleasure to talk what to you. a Thank pleasure you talking to you and can i just say to you you are doing something amazing Thanks. 600 musicians that don't live in new york city maybe necessarily <laughs> and nobody knows about and you've taken the trouble to go talk to us it's Thank exciting. you. thanks man all right
music from John Durth, recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia. Thanks again to John Mason for setting that up. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join, or support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can join the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Check jasoncrane.org for tour diaries and poetry, and then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.